Almost every story in this man's life is a, a shadow or a type or a prophetic symbol of the coming Messiah who would one day take away the sin of the world. Both Elisha and Jesus have an incredible amount of parallels in their life, starting with the fact that both of them had a prophet who came before them, preparing the way for their ministry. Elisha was mentored by the prophet Elijah, who prepared the hearts of the people of Israel for Elisha's ministry. Elisha also, uh, Elijah famously parted the Jordan River, and he was a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit who preached repentance of sin. John the Baptist, too, is also a prophet who baptized people in the Jordan River, who was also filled with the Spirit and preached repentance of sin. So both Elisha and Jesus, before they've even begun their prophetic ministry, we're already seeing the parallels in their life. Both of them have this prophet figure who comes before them preparing the way for their ministry. So when we come to Elisha and Jesus, what actually are the similarities or parallels that we see? Well, really, we have no shortage of parallels between these two characters. For example... Both Jesus and Elisha predominantly had a very relational ministry compared to other prophets. Most of the Old Testament prophets were calling out the corporate sins of the nation. And so they would preach publicly in the square. And Elisha and Jesus both did this. But the stories that are reflected in the Gospels and in 2 Kings are primarily them having one-on-one encounters with people. Both of them also transform water into something else. The prophet Elisha transforms bitter water into drinkable water. And Jesus transforms water into drinkable wine at the wedding of Cana. Both have a miracle of multiplication. Elisha famously multiplies the widow's oil. Jesus multiplies food and bread and fish for a crowd. Elisha resurrects the deceased son of a mother, the Shunammite woman. So also Jesus resurrects the son of the widow uh, of Nain. Both of them have miracles in which they multiply bread. Jesus feeds 5,000. Elisha performs a miracle in which he provides bread for 100. Both of them heal lepers. The prophet Elisha heals the Syrian general Naaman. And Jesus multiple times heals many lepers throughout his journey. Both of these prophets have a disciple who betray their trust. Elisha's servant, uh, Gehazi, he goes and he takes the money from Naaman behind Elisha's back. The disciple Judas goes behind Jesus' back and takes money from the Pharisees, both betraying their mentors. Both of them have a, a miracle which has something to do with floating on water. The prophet Elisha causes an accent that has sunk and been lost to come and float back up to the surface. Jesus himself walks on the water. He himself is the thing that is going against the natural order of things. And both of them resurrect people through their death. The prophet Elisha, his bones are placed in a tomb. And we're told this story of these uh, men who are trying to bury a friend of theirs And then some uh, bandits come and are looking to attack them. So they just throw this dead body into a tomb that happens to be Elisha's. And we're told that when the person's body touched the bones of Elisha, the person raised back to life. Of course, through Jesus, 
and his death, we have the ultimate resurrection of all who believe in him. So from the very preparation of their ministry to the miracles they performed, the relationships they had, even to the way uh, in which their death brings life, both of these men have so much in common. And everything in Elisha's life seems to be pointing us forward to Jesus, the future Messiah, pointing forward to an even greater messianic miracle worker. Jesus didn't just transform bitter water into normal water like Elisha. He transforms it into a completely different substance. Jesus doesn't just multiply bread to feed 100. He he feeds 5,000. Jesus doesn't just heal one leper. He heals several. All of the miracles that Elisha perform are done again by Jesus, but they're intensified. They're done on a scale even bigger and larger than what we see in the life of Elisha. So the entire life of Elisha is just one beautiful picture of the amazing, incredible, life-saving miracles which Jesus would one day perform to bring salvation to the entire world, to those who believe. But there's one miracle on that table before that I didn't include. And it's a very obscure and very often forgotten miracle performed by Elisha. And yet it too profoundly points to the fact that Elisha's miracles are a type and a shadow that point forward to Jesus. So I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, where we find this very obscure and often forgotten miracle that is performed by the prophet Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 38. And it's a very brief story, only one, two, three, four verses. But there is so much packed into these short verses here. We'll begin, we'll, we'll read just verse 38. And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. We'll stop there because already we have so much to unpack. The first of which is to notice that like Jesus, Elisha is a traveling preacher. Both Jesus and Elisha traveled all around Israel and even into foreign territories, taking their message and teaching people along the way. And so we're told that Elisha, he's returning now to Gilgal. This is one of the towns he's visiting on his kind of circuit or prophetic ministry circuit he's doing around Israel. So both Jesus and Elisha are traveling preachers. Elisha, we're also told, comes to Gilgal. And this is a place of incredible significance for many reasons. Gilgal is the place where the Israelites camped after they crossed the Jordan River. And they also built a memorial, an altar there, to commemorate uh, this incredible miracle of God parting the waters of the Jordan River. Gilgal was also one of the areas which the prophet Samuel visited on his prophetic circuits around Israel. Samuel as well would travel all around Israel preaching and teaching. So Gilgal, when we read that he is returning to Gilgal, uh, we should be feeling something significant is going to happen here. Whenever Gilgal has been mentioned so far in Israel's history, it's been full of rich uh, spiritual significance. It's a place that points both backwards and forwards in time. It reminds Israel of the, uh, the crossing of the Jordan in their past. But it also reminds them of the miracles Elijah and Elisha performed, both parting the Jordan River as well. And of course, we know it's pointing forward 
to the fact that John the Baptist would one day baptize in the Jordan River. So all of these things are indicating to us something significant is going to happen. Gilgal is an important place in the history of God's people. The other thing to notice is that there's a famine in the land. Now, this famine was no doubt a covenant curse inflicted on the land and the people for their idolatry. Right before Elisha, we know that Elijah was preaching against King Ahab and Jezebel. And they were the worst offenders when it came to introducing idolatry into the land. Not only that, but killing and persecuting God's true prophets. 2 Kings 8.1 even tells us that this famine eventually would last for seven years. So this is a very dire place. But it's really quite sad because the promised land is supposed to be a place of abundance. It's described as a place flowing with milk and honey. And yet the land is completely barren and there's a shortage of food. The great irony, of course, is that the idols that the people are worshipping are that of Baal and Ashtaroth or Baal and Asherah. And Baal was the god of thunder and rain and fertility of the land. And yet Baal seems completely impotent in doing anything. He has no power to bring the rain when the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has decided to shut up the heavens and give no rain. Baal cannot even lift a finger to do otherwise. And the Bible is full of these demonstrations of how God is completely powerful and more superior and has authority over these false gods and idols of the surrounding nations. And eventually most people, not always, but a lot of the time people realize that the idols that they're worshipping have no true power. And they eventually just give up. They give up on these idols. Often, though, the idolatrous human heart will find a new idol to fill that void. But humans seem to make idols and then get rid of them based on whether they can be convenient or not. This is a very powerful quote that I found on the nature of idolatry. Um, It says the following. If gods and idols are mainly human constructs, then they are not only destructive, but are also destructible. Just as destructible as anything else we make on earth. The gods too are subject to decay and death. They are no more durable than the people or empires that make them. The scorn of the Assyrian toward the defunct gods he had conquered now rebounds on himself in the light of history. For where now are the gods of Assyria, or Babylon, or Persia, or Greece, or Rome? History is the graveyard of the gods. What a powerful statement it is, isn't it? All of these ancient nations, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, all said, our gods are the most superior, they are the greatest. And yet where are their gods today? Forgotten completely by history. History is the graveyard of these gods that people have abandoned realizing that the only true God, the only God that has stood the test of time is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So here we're seeing a very sad beginning to our story. Elisha, he's this Jesus-like figure who travels and preaches. He's come to a place rich with spiritual meaning, but the land is filled with famine because the people are worshiping idols rather than God. Let's see how the story progresses in verses 39 and 40. 
So one of them one of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine. And they gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Men of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. In these two verses alone, we actually see a small picture of the original fall of the human race. See if you can follow with me. In this story, uh, and in the story uh, in the Garden of Eden, we have one person separating themselves from everyone else, going to look in search of food. Then that person is separated from the rest of the group. They come across a fruit that looks good to eat. They then take that fruit back to the people that they left and offer it to them. Except when all of them partake in the fruit, they realize that it leads to death. The the school of prophets are in a tricky spot. No matter what they do, death surrounds them. Death surrounds them in the form of the famine that's led to a food shortage. Death then mocks them further by making the actual available food deadly and poisonous. But this is the very same state that the human race are in. The same state that Adam and Eve found themselves in when they ate the forbidden fruit. Humanity was designed to live forever, to never experience death. The perfect Garden of Eden, the promised land, we could say, was given to them, but was now taken away from them. Instead, their new environment was inhospitable and full of hardship and death and suffering. And we've inherited that same world from Adam and Eve. We live today in a world that groans and longs for the second coming of Jesus to just put an end to the suffering that we experience today. We too are also living in a world experiencing a famine of the word of God. We too live in a culture that is obsessed with worshipping idols, anything else except giving true and proper worship to God. So these men and this situation they're in are really a sobering picture of the same type of world we live in today. A world surrounded by death with no hope in the midst of a great famine as a result of idolatry. So the question is, who is going to save these men from certain death? No matter what they do, death surrounds them. So who can bring life where there is only death and poison? Let's read the final verse of the story together. Verse 41. So Elisha said, bring some flour. And he put it into the pot. And Elisha said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. So here we see Elisha again coming in as a Christ-like figure. He's entering into a situation where there's only certain death. And yet Elisha is able to provide a means of life. The food is now, uh, the food was inedible. The people are going to soon starve if they don't find more food. But Elisha performs a miracle that brings life. And Elisha does it in an unusual way. He simply says, get me some flour and puts the flour into the pot. Now, clearly there's nothing special or some inherent substance about the flour that would negate the poison of the fruit. So this is a a divine supernatural event. This is a miracle that is being performed. 
But have you thought to yourself, why is it Elisha chose flour? He could have picked anything to throw into the pot if, if what he threw into the pot didn't physically change it. This was a supernatural event. It was a miracle. He could have used anything, right? Why didn't he use uh, honey? Why didn't he throw some salt or some sugar in there? Why flour? I believe it's because throughout the Bible, flour or grain has a very special religious significance as well. And perhaps we see that uh, demonstrated no more clearly than in the flour or grain offerings that were given in the temple. Come with me briefly to Leviticus chapter 2, where we can read a bit more about what these grain offerings entailed. What you would find in a grain offering. So God instructs the people. He's giving a list of the different types of offerings and sacrifices that were to be given. And then we come to one which is the grain offering. And it says, when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priests shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire and a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And as you continue reading this chapter, we see that God is quite meticulous in the details he gives. For example, he says, if the flour was used in an oven, bring it in the form of small cakes. And then he says, if the flour was baked in a pan or a covered pan, there's even more different ways that the flour was to be presented and offered up in the temple. The offering was then brought to the priests and a a portion was burnt as a memorial, while the other portion was given to Aaron and his sons. But what was this a memorial of? What was the significance of this grain offering? It was a memorial of God's provision for the needs of his people. Back in the ancient day and even today still, flour was a basic staple food. You needed it for bread and to make these basic items. Without flour, your your options were limited as to what you could eat. So flour or grain was a perfect symbol of man's dependence on God for life, on man's uh, needing to rely on God to provide for all of the daily needs. And so it was a perfect symbol of thanksgiving and gratitude for God for his provision. But the flower takes on another layer of significance when we realize that the grain must perish in order to bring the flower or in order to bring life. Here's a quote from the SDA Bible commentary, which I thought was just beautiful. Talking about this exact offering, it says, Flower is merely crushed grain. Before being crushed, before being crushed, it is capable of perpetuating itself, of transmitting life. Now being crushed, it is apparently useless. It can never be planted again. The life is crushed out of it. But is it useless? No. It has given its life, it has died, that another life might be maintained. The crushing of its own life becomes the means through which a higher life is perpetuated. It was the life of the seed, and now it helps sustain the life of a living being 
created in the image of God. Death has enriched it, glorified it, and made it serviceable to man. The grain that is used, the grain that is used, uh, it perishes, but the flower that it produces brings life to someone else. Isn't this exactly the picture that we see of Jesus on the cross? That through his death, through his suffering, he is able to bring eternal life to all who believe in him. Notice as well that this is given as a type of sacrifice. And so just as the flower was given as a sacrifice, so also Jesus is given as the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus on the cross is the ultimate expression of our need and our dependence on God to rescue us from death and bring us into life. Without Christ, we are completely dead in our trespasses and sin, and there is no hope for us. But praise God that Jesus offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice for us so that through his suffering and death, we may have eternal life. So where does this take us in our story of Elisha and the pot? Well, it shows us, again, Elisha, everything in his life foreshadows what Jesus would one day do, but in a greater way. And so our story of Elisha cleansing or purifying the stew, getting the poison and the death out of the pot, reveals to us this, that like Elisha, Jesus came to a world that was dying and it was full of idolatry and famine of the word of God. This was the setting and the context that Jesus had to come into. That like Elisha, Jesus found disciples willing to listen to him. Notice it says that when he arrived at Gilgal, they sat down at his feet and listened to the teaching of Elisha. So also Jesus found people to surround himself with, students, disciples, willing to listen to his teaching and instruction. Like Elisha, Jesus found a people who had eaten forbidden fruit and were facing the consequences of that, which were death. Like Elisha, Jesus brought life where there once was death. And in a situation where there was no possibility for any hope of life, where death surrounded the people at every corner, Jesus is able to bring life and life abundant. Like the flower and the grain offering, Jesus represents our dependence upon God to meet our every need, both our temporary, our temporal physical needs, but also our eternal spiritual needs. Like the flower, Jesus was crushed so that through his suffering and through his death, he could provide life to others. And like the flower, Jesus entered into an environment of death and instead brought nourishment, sustenance, and life. In every way, in this story of this great and often forgotten miracle of Elisha's, we see that Jesus is a greater, uh, a greater type of Elisha, a greater miracle worker. Uh, he's a greater, uh, greater sacrifice given on behalf of his people. In every way, he is a greater expression. And so the question for us today is then, are we willing to give ourselves to Jesus? Jesus, remember, describes himself as being the bread of life. We remember today that as Jesus sat with his disciples, he broke bread, he gave them wine. And as he gave them the bread, he said that this represented his body, which was broken for them. As he gave the cup of wine, 
He said that it was a symbol of his blood that was broken for the transgressions of, uh, for, broken for our transgressions and shed for the remission of sins. This was the pathway to an eternal life in a world that was filled with the curse of death. Notice as well that like the disciples of Elisha, there's no option B for us. If Elisha's disciples had not eaten the now edible stew, they would have eventually died from starvation. There was no food left. This was the only food that could be found. So they had to place their faith and trust in Elisha that he had made the stew well. And if they hadn't eaten from the stew, they would have eventually died. There was no neutral ground in the story. And the same is true for us. We either decide to participate in the life-giving abundance of Jesus or we're choosing death. A decision must be made. There is no neutral ground for us. We choose death when, like the Israelites, we decide to follow worthless and meaningless idols that can't actually do anything for us, that provide no satisfaction for us. They only bring hunger and further starvation. Instead, we need to make a decision to feed upon the word of God daily and let it create in us life anew. We cannot let there be a famine in our lives, a famine of God's word, just as there was a famine of God's word in the time of Elisha and Israel. So this morning, as we remember everything that Jesus did, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, let us be like the prophets here in Elisha's story who chose to go to the source of life. People who were experiencing and were surrounded by death and decay, and yet they went to the place where they could find life and sustenance and nourishment. This morning, I want for us to all together choose life. Let's go to the one person who is the greatest miracle worker ever that Elisha's life was pointing to. Jesus, the great miracle worker, the great offering that was given on our behalf for the salvation of the world. This morning, let us not choose death. Let us instead choose life.